0: Good morning. Awesome to see you guys here today. Uh, If you thought you were late to the early service, welcome from being early to the late service. That is the magic of Time Change Sunday. So glad that you guys are here. We're in week two of a series called Life Giving Limits. And if you missed it last week, we're just going to recap it quickly. Basically, God gave us his law and his rules not to harm us but to help us and not to limit us in that it takes something from us, but actually in order to free us, to free us from ourselves and the sin that tries to debilitate our lives and also to free us from harming other people around us. I can remember a time that when you, if you were a smoker, you could smoke anywhere nothing was off limits no rules man there was there were ashtrays at work people smoked at work uh, I think some pulpits had them back in the day you know they preacher get a quick puff before they preach and um, I think there there's some baby strollers that had a little ashtray I'm not sure about that but they're everywhere man it was all over the place and then they set some rules and some limits which became an inconvenience if you're a smoker That became an inconvenience but what it did is it set others free from secondhand smoke And so that life-giving limits that God gives us oftentimes free us from harming others. Today we're going to look at the limits God has placed in our relationship with Him. He gave us some rules and limits in our relationship with Him. When Christ died upon a cross, so many amazing things happened. But one of the really cool things that happened was this, this... a curtain that separated the rest of the temple from the holiest of holy places in the temple, which scholars say were about four inches thick. That's a big curtain. It got torn from top to bottom and God ripped it apart. And he's, what he was symbolically saying was, listen, now it isn't just the priests who have access to me. All of you now can have access to the living God and have a personal intimate relationship with me. With me but not without limits. If you're a parent, you understand the the struggle that it is to to both parent and yet build a relationship with your kids. That's no easy task. In fact, you probably feel torn at times about uh, being a friend, and certainly that relationship with your kids is a friendship, but it's not just Of friendship and 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 as a parent just FYI I believe the best way to parent is be the parent first and the friend second being the friend first and the parent second doesn't work out so well and the same thing is true with our Heavenly Father That our Heavenly Father, when Jesus Christ entered into our life and we placed our faith in Him, something really amazing happened in that He became our Father and we became His children and we're all one big happy family. And in this family, there are lots of benefits and perks, but it doesn't mean there aren't rules and limits. That His authority still remains true. That means this. That God as the father, God as the creator, God as the lawgiver has every right to put rules and regulations and limits on you and me. God in his sovereignty and his wisdom has the right to do with your life and with my life whatever he deems necessary. So what are these limits with God? We're going to look at them together today. And they're found, we're going to just look at four of them today, and starting at the beginning of what's called the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, when God began to define what this relationship with him looks like and how to operate in him. And they're all what's called moral laws. They're, They're right and wrong. They're ethically based. But what you're going to need to understand is in your Old Testament, there's actually several different types of Old Testament law. And we're going to just hit this briefly, but there are moral laws like the Ten Commandments that have always been true, are true today, and always will be true because they are based on what is right and wrong and in the nature and character of God. And those are things like uh, murder and adultery and the like are always wrong God has said it Old Testament and New Testament no it's wrong and it also means that loving your neighbor and being sacrificial and kind and generous are always right because they are universally true and they're based in the nature and the character of God himself therefore they cannot change because God himself does not change they're universally always true, moral laws. You'll see plenty of those in the Old Testament we're going to look at for today. There's also what's called civil laws, and the civil laws were given as a deal or a bargain with the nation of Israel to say, if I'm going to be your God and I'm going to be your king, then these are the rules that we're going to need in order to function, you as my people and as a nation together, and these are the rules as a nation that I will establish And it it supposes a theocracy, which is a fancy word to say, God is the king and the ruler. God is the government of this nation. It was a one-time deal that God made with Israel say, I'll be your king. And if I'm going to be your king, here's the rules you need to live by in order to get along with each other and to not harm one another. And you see all kinds of things. If you break this, then this is the punishment. You read that over and over in your Old Testament, and those are called civil laws. I'll give you an example of one one of the civil laws in the Old Testament says that if as you gather your crop as you gather your grain from your fields you are to leave the corners of your fields unharvested and to leave the grain or the crop there and the reason you would do that is the foreigner alien or poor among you who are hungry and in need could come and gather that and feed themselves as a civil law that means you and I don't have to grow a garden Thank God, because I don't have a green thumb. We don't have to grow a garden and leave the edges for other people to come into our backyard and steal our stuff. That's not what he requires. We don't have to follow those directly today. But here's what we can do. We can learn the principle from those civil laws. And so the principle might be, now don't grow a garden. The principle would be what? I need to be generous and thoughtful and kind and helpful to the least of these and the poor among us, that if I'm going to follow the spirit of that law, that I would do those things. And there's principles I can learn from God's civil law to the nation Israel. Third kind of law is called the sacrificial laws. And it was the laws that governed the sacrifices in the Old Testament. They would take an animal, and all kinds of different animals, all kinds of different sacrifices, and they would slaughter those animals as a way to cover, or the Old Testament calls an atonement of sin. And it, was, it would push it off so that it doesn't have to be, we don't have to be guilty of it now. It could be paid for later. Well, guess what? That later has come. And as the atonement has happened in the Old Testament, finally Jesus Christ himself, it says in the scriptures, that he died for our sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That means this, listen, it says it in Hebrews 9, it says it in Hebrews 10, that this once-for-all sacrifice doesn't just cover our sin or atone for it for a season. It actually paid for it, and it is removed, and the sin and the penalty is gone. That's the completeness of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And when he did that, the sacrificial rules are now obsolete because they're not covering any sin because all the sin has already been paid for have you ever wondered why Jesus said, he said two different things. He said, I came to fulfill the law, moral code, and he said, I came to abolish it, the the sacrificial. That's how he could say those two different things. So, when we look at those sacrificial laws, we don't follow them, but you know what they do for us? You can read about those and you gain perspective on so many things. You gain perspective on just how holy God is, that the instruments used for his worship in the temple could not be touched by certain people, by most people. It couldn't touch unholy or unclean things, that he is set apart and God is holy and he is beyond our description of how magnificently pure and, and, and ethical he is. And we learn about the depths of sin and just how ugly sin is and just how debilitating it is and how it requires a sacrifice. And it leads us back to what David was reading about earlier, that the cross of Jesus Christ is this beautiful thing where the, the need of humanity is met by the plan of God and all those things are reconciled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we gain perspective on how beautiful that sacrifice truly is. That was a big setup, wasn't it? That took a long time to get there. Now, let's look at the first command. I want you to look at these four commands. These limits were given on God. They are given that we might function in a healthy relationship with the living God. And this is what it says Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, he had just said in the verse previously, and we looked at this last week, he said, listen, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I did all those miracles. I've led you here, and I am your God Before I give you these 10 rules and the 600 other ones I'm going to add later in these other books, I want you to know you're already in. You're already my people. I've already accepted you as my family, and I am your God. You don't follow these rules in order to become my family. you, You follow these rules because you are in my family. And the first law he says is, listen, I want to be first. I want to be the first in your life. And you, and I'm sure they can think that. And we would think, is that it? Is the first big law God wants us to say is that God, you come first. Are you kidding me? That's easy. Absolutely. You can come first because you've delivered me from my sin, because you've delivered me from where I used to be, because you've been so good to me, because you've provided for me, because you've walked with me through the desert, because you've done all these things. All you're asking is for me to, for you to be my God and come 1st Absolutely. And he does. But I want you to know that it's, a, no, it's a footnote in your Bible. Oftentimes that same phrase is, is translated, you shall know have no other gods besides me. You can look it up in your Bible at home. Besides me. Now that carries a little bit different connotation to it. Not only does he say I want to be first, God is saying I want to be your only. I want to be your only God. In a world and a culture where people recognize and worship all these other gods, you're not to do that. You're not to recognize other gods. You're not to worship other gods. You're only to recognize and worship me. See, the Israel of the Old Testament wasn't wasn't tempted to throw away God. They didn't want to get rid of God. What the temptation was over and over again was to add other gods to what they worship and say, God will take you and, and some of what you teach us, but I also want to worship Baal and Asherah and these other Canaanite gods. And God says, no, right out of the gate. I am to be your only, your only. So let me ask you. What else are you tempted to worship? What competes for your attention and your thoughts and your allegiance? Can I tell you today, we don't lack things to worship in our lives. We don't call them gods, but they they function as gods. And here's how you can know if there's something in your heart that you worship as God or as a God in your life, maybe next to God or near God, and somehow you're bringing that same allegiance to something. It is anything you can't live without and anything you worry about losing. Constantly worried about losing. Listen, that is what we worship in our heart. We're afraid. We can't imagine our life without him. And so we hang on to it entirely. And I I, I can't picture my life without this thing. To that, God says, you should have no other gods before me. That you are to be satisfied in me and my love alone, period. And that everything else in your life... You don't hang on to it tightly. You hang on to it loosely, and and you may love it, and you may enjoy it, and you may thank God for it, and it's a blessing, and it's amazing to you, and and, and it means a lot to you, but you hold on to it loosely knowing, I don't have to have this. The one I have to have, God, the one I'm going to cling to is you. I don't want to live my life without you. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, that's the first one. Second life-giving limit. Second rule God gives that we might function in a healthy relationship with Him is commandment number two, and it says this. It says, "You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on the earth or beneath the waters below that pretty much covers everything. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." Punishing the children for their sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations uh, to those who love me and keep my commands. The second commandment is a lot like the first one. He says instead of hanging on to an idea or a philosophy or something you love, it's talking about things and stuff. He says don't make something, don't possess something that you love anywhere close to how you love me. We don't do that today. We don't have idols. We don't have them sitting on the shelves. We don't. We don't carry them around with us. We don't. We don't have these things that we just have all of our time and attention and our affection and we give ourselves to over and over and over again. Or do we? And we've never thought of this that way—that this might be an idol. But listen, it's talking about the stuff that we possess and it has our heart affection. And for some of us, it is a device like that. For some of it, it is the things we own that we couldn't imagine our life without our house or our car or the things for our hobbies or anything like that. And we have an allegiance to our stuff. And God says, listen, it doesn't belong up there with me. We're going to spend a whole week on the limits God puts on our stuff. So I'm not going to beat this one to death today. We'll, we'll cover it in a couple weeks. What I do want to uh, point your attention to is the last half of that f- uh, verse as we just read. It said that God would punish to the third and fourth generation. Did you catch that? Some people call that a generational curse. And I get asked that a lot. Pastor, what do you think about this generational curse idea? I'm going to tell you something. I don't think it's a thing. I don't think it's a thing. What do I mean by that? Well, it says it there, Pastor. How does it not there? Listen, what I believe is happening in this passage right here, when he says that, he's describing this covenant relationship that he has with Israel. And he's saying, listen, I'm about to bring you into the promised land. And, man, it would be so good for you and your descendants for miles down the road if you'll follow my commands. But if you screw it up now, it's going to screw it up for the generations that follow you. See, the generational curse idea is this. If grandma did something bad, real bad, then you are facing the effects, the spiritual effects in your life because grandma messed up and there's a spiritual blocker in your life and you can't go on with God the way you want to and you're stuck in sin like you don't want to be a part of because of what grandma did. Listen, if generational curses are true, then you got to take the other piece. Then the generational blessings are true. And he said, listen, this curse idea this is three or four generations. The blessing is for a thousand generations. I like those odds. How about you? That if grandma did something good, it's going to be blessed the rest of your life and the rest of all your descendants' lives. Listen, if that's true, the other is true too. No, I don't think you're stuck in a sin or I'm stuck in a sin because of what grandma did. I don't care how bad you cussed out the deacon. The reason you and I are stuck spiritually in our lives is because of one decision that Adam and Eve made all the way back at the beginning and the daily choices you and I make in our lives today, that's why we're hitting a roadblock in our spiritual walk with God. And that is it. You're not a victim to what grandma did. Yeah, give him praise for that. You're not bound by that. Christ broke all that. I will tell you this. As parents, this is a heavy weight. As grandparents too, we set the pattern for our kids and our grandkids to follow for generations to come. And they pick up on our habits and our attitudes and our values and our priorities. And if the things of God are important to us, the things of God will be important to them. And if the things of God are not important to us, I got news for you. It's not going to be important to them, even less so. They do pick up on our habits. How many have realized, you woke up one day and you realized, I am my parents (laughs) I say what my parents used to say and I do what my parents used to do I flip I spent half my time at home flipping off lights turn the dang lights off now being your parents isn't all bad my parents are in the back I'm gonna say that they gave me a lot of good stuff it's not a bad thing it's just you end up being so much more like your parents than you thought you would be why is that they set the pattern for your life. You want to know what this three, four generations and a thousand generations means? Here's the point God's making. He says, I'm better to you than you deserve. If you screw up, it lasts for a moment. But when you find my blessing, it lasts for eternity. That my grace is greater than your sin and my salvation overcomes anything in your life. Give God praise for that. Yeah. We can go home after that, man. That's awesome. Let's take those two first commandments together. We break those first two commandments. You should have no gods before me and you should not make any idols. When we elevate something up and it's in competition with God where it's greater priority in our life than God or it's equal in our relation, in life with God or it's even close to comparing into, into our love for God. You know why Jesus could say, unless you hate your father and mother, you have no place in my kingdom. What he is saying is this, your love for God should so outpass anything else in your life and anyone else in your life That compared to the love you have for God, the love you have for your family looks like hate. Because you love him so much, nothing else can compete with the love you have for God. So our life-giving lesson number one is simply this. Don't elevate anything in comparison to God. Nothing else should come close. Nothing else should rival it. Not your ambitions, not what you want to do with your life, not what other people think of you, not any of that. Only what God thinks matters. In fact, the New Testament says, but in your hearts set apart Christ or revere Christ as Lord Man, he should be set apart. He should be above. Nothing should even come close. He's way higher. He's way greater. He's, he's way more important. He has greater priority than anything else. And listen, when you recognize, and this happens, this is a question we should be asking ourselves all the time. God, have I elevated anything in comparison to you? Is anything coming even close to you? And when we recognize that something is competing with God, we only have two choices. The first is that we lower it back down and we admit to God, man, this has snuck up, God. This is creeping up on my priority, and I just want to push it back down and exalt you higher and bring it lower. Or... If we can't do that, we have to get rid of it. Remember the story, Jesus met a man. It's a true story in the the Gospels. The the rich young ruler, and this guy had followed God's law, and he was was obeying the commandments, and and he came up and kind of bragged about it to Jesus. He's like, I've done all that, Jesus. Jesus looked right through to his heart. He says, one thing you lack, sell everything you own and follow me said the guy was brokenhearted because he loved his money and he loved his stuff and jesus knew the man enough to say he can't manage this he can't lower this the only thing he needs to do is get rid of it and sell it all and then you'll be worthy to follow me so my question for us is what is competing with god in your life it's got to go that's what those first two commandments teach us. The third commandment that it brings life to our relationship with God, is says this. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, when we, we read that, we, if you've got a church background, you know that's called taking the Lord's name in vain, where you say Jesus or God or GD in an offensive way as like a cuss word or, or as a punchline to a joke, and, and you use it flippantly like that. And God's saying, Listen, no, this is my name you're talking about. My name isn't a cuss word. My name isn't a punchline. My name doesn't make you cool. My name is to be revered by you. My name, the Jews wouldn't even write it fully. They wouldn't even speak it. They so revered the name of the living God. They said, how could we not take it and hold it in honor? It's exactly what this commandment is saying. And if you didn't realize those words were taboo and off limits to a follower of Jesus, you know now. Don't use them that way. I'm going to challenge you not laugh at those jokes anymore. It's to be revered the name of God. But I believe this commandment means more than just not saying those things. This commandment means something more profound than that it means that we are people that bear the name of jesus if we've identified with christ through salvation if we've identified with christ through baptism if we wear, put a jesus sticker on our bumper if we've got the fish thing somewhere if we wear a cross any way if we've told people we go to church and they're in way identified with christ then we bear his name And if you and I live godly or ungodly, we are now representing Christ either by our godly behavior or our ungodly behavior. And he says, listen, when you misuse my name, it's when you drag my name through the mud by living a way that is dishonoring me. When you just live like everyone else, you're misusing my name. You represent me. 2 Corinthians 5 calls us ambassadors. You ever thought of yourself that way? Our country, of every country that is friendly to the United States, we have an ambassador, and that ambassador represents the United States to that country. And if that ambassador were to offend that country or someone there, then it wouldn't just be that ambassador who would be in a bad light. It would be all of us were brought into a bad light. And in a similar way, we represent the King of kings, the Lord of lords, almighty God, who's bounding love and slow to anger, and we bear his name. We don't dare take his name in the mud in front of other people. That's what this really means. So, does our public life represent God as an ambassador? When you walk out that door, I don't know what this does for you. It creates an urgency in my life that I need to get in my face before the living God every single day that when I walk out my door, I don't misrepresent my God to anybody, and it should you too. Man, we bear his name. What a privilege. What an honor. What a joy. What a responsibility. We get to bear his name to the people around us that desperately Desperately need to know Him. One more commandment. It brings life to your relationship with God. It says this, commandment four says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, darn it, kids can't even do the chores. Nor your male or female servant. You can't even get Grubhub to come. Nor your animals, nor their foreigners residing in your towns. Pretty much covers it, no leapholes. For in the six days that the Lord has made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This fourth commandment is simply God says, stop and honor me. Stop and honor me. You've got six days to do all the things you've got to do. But the seventh day, you should stop and honor me. I'm worthy of it. And listen, it's not just tied to Exodus chapter 20 in the law. If you noticed, he tied it to the order of creation. And so it's saying this, as long as God is creator, this rule stands. So as long as as, if God were to stop being creator, then we could ignore the Sabbath. You said that's not going to happen. Exactly. Jesus affirmed the Sabbath over and over again in the Gospels. He said it's good. We should observe the Sabbath. He observed the Sabbath. In fact, he said it is not to enslave us, but it's actually given to free us and to benefit us. He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So that means it is good for us, and it has blessings and benefits to us. It recharges us physically. It renews us emotionally and relationally. And it hones us in spiritually to what matters most in our life. It does all those things. And it's a tremendous amount of benefits. But because it's for our benefit, it doesn't mean it's optional. That's not what it means. I say, well, what's wrong with doing what I want to do on my day? That's exactly, exactly, exactly the point. It's not my free day. It's a he day. It's not your free day. It's his day. It's his day. See, the day was made for our benefit, but it's about God. It's for his glory and for his purpose. It centers us back that he is most important, that this life is about you, God. I've been running around for six days, but the seventh day I remembered, wait a minute, this isn't even about me af- anyway. It's about you. And when we, de- when we don't do the Sabbath, we're devaluing God in our own eyes. But when we practice the Sabbath, check this out. All three of those others we just read, those three commandments, they are fulfilled when we take a Sabbath. Because every Sabbath we go and say, you know what, God? It's you, you're God, and you're God alone. And all this other things and the stuff I'm striving for doesn't really matter or compare to you anyway. And God, I'm your ambassador. And every seven days we get a reminder of all three of the first commandments that we would center our lives on the living God. That's God's intention for our Sabbath. So let me just say this. If you resent these four limits, that reveals that something is competing for your heart alongside God. If you and I resent these limits that are to bring life and freedom, there's something else that we love a little bit too much, and it's competing with God. And when we recognize, that's the thing we ought to be asking ourselves over and over again. God, have I let anything creep up? Is anything taken center stage? Is anything even close to you? And if the answer is yes, then we come to God and say, God, I see it, I admit it, and I'm wrong. Take center stage. Take full control. You be the point, high point of my life, and nothing else come close. If through our words or our actions, our priorities, we've lowered God and devalued him in our eyes or the eyes of others through taking his name in vain or or not following the Sabbath, he says, listen, set me apart. Set me apart. In fact, I want to give us just a minute to do that as we close today. And just give ourselves a few seconds to ask those questions. Is anything competing with my God? Is, is, is Jesus set apart as the Lord of my life or have I've let other things dictate to me that should not be there? So we're gonna take a time of quiet, silent prayer Then I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna to pray together uh, with a verse on the screen. So uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. God, would you search your people's hearts? Search my heart today, God. Let nothing come close to you. And Lord, if there's something that has creeped up in that in our lives, show us right now what's competing with you. That we might confess it, lower it, or remove it as you lead. for being attentive to the prayers of your people. That all over this room, you're having an intimate conversation with us. God, be lifted up, be set apart, be revered, be our Lord, be our God, be above all things, we pray. And Lord, if there's a person in this place that doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus, I mean, you know the words, and you go to church, and you've sung some songs, but but God seems far away, and you've never uh, asked Christ by a point of decision that he would come and be a part of your life. Can I tell you something this morning? That veil was torn for you, that God ripped it in shreds, that he might have a personal relationship with you, and he desperately desires to come into your life, to forgive you of your sins, to shower you with love, to give you a home in heaven and usher into his family. But he's waiting. He's waiting for your invitation. He's waiting for your point of decision. That you'll say, Jesus, now, today, I desperately need you and I invite you in. If that's your desire this morning, he's knocking on your heart door right now. He's saying, let me in. I want to forgive you if you'll confess your sin to me. If you'll admit you need my forgiveness, I'll offer it. So right now, if you'll do that, I just want you to pray in your seat. You don't have to pray out loud, but turn your heart to God. And say, Jesus, I need you. I'm asking for the forgiveness only you can give. I'm putting my faith and trust in the God who came down, died upon a cross, and rose from the dead. I believe you did that for me. And the best I know how, I say yes to you. And I want to follow you. Thank you for the free gift of eternal life that's found only in Jesus alone. Now as we're keeping an attitude of prayer, I want to point your attention to the screens. I want you to read these words for a minute. And we're going to pray them for anybody who wants to make this the, the prayer of your heart. a way to pray and say, God, I elevate you. You can take center stage. Pray this way. You can do it silently if you like. Say, God, today, I want you to take center stage of my life. Nothing and no one compares to you. You love me when I am unlovable. I am satisfied in your love. In return, I love you above everything else. May my words, my actions, and my priorities reflect that I love you most. You are worthy of my best today. With your help, I offer myself to you. Amen.